Uh, let me just uh, throw a sentence or two at you here by way of introducing our first guest this morning. If a drug is available in multiple countries, it will have the same ingredients. Human bodies are the same regardless of what country they're in. Therefore, if a drug has a safety problem in Canada, it should cause the same problem in Australia, the United Kingdom, or the United States. But not necessarily, according to government agencies such as Health Canada that regulate drugs. This is the first paragraph of a piece written for theconversation.com by Joel Lection. Dr. Lection is an associate professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto, and he's also an emergency room physician at the University Health Network in Toronto. The piece is entitled Drug Safety, Health Canada Must Act Faster when approved medications show risks. Dr. Lection, good morning. Welcome to the program, Joel. Thanks very much, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you with us, sir. Uh, we're, of course, uh, learning in, in these coronavirus times a lot more about public health agencies such as Health Canada and the role they play in our society. Perhaps Canadians, Dr. Lection, are more aware of our public health agencies and, and the job they do than perhaps we ever have been before. This is a beneficial uh, thing to, to have going up for you when you write a piece like the one you've written for the conversation people are tuned in i hope so um it's unfortunate that it takes something like coronavirus pandemic to um, make people more aware of what goes on uh, with health canada and similar agencies now, you describe yourself as being part of a multi-country group that is looking at safety advisories. And this is, as we talked about, you mentioned in your, in your opening remarks, Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. And this group has been looking at safety advisories in that four-country group for over 10 years now, correct? Um, not 10 years. We're now in the fourth year of the project. The project is headed... Um, by Dr. Barbara Mincy. She used to be at UBC. She's now at the University of Sydney. And she put together this group. I think there are probably about 15 people um, who are based in those four countries that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And what we've been looking at are um, the advisories that organizations like Health Canada or the Food and Drug Administration in the United States put out when they're concerned about um, the safety of a drug that's being marketed. And we're trying to see whether or not <clears throat> those advisories are the same in each of the countries. Do they emphasize the same points? Do they make the same recommendations? Um, and then what the effects of those uh, advisories have, are on the way that doctors prescribe and people use drugs so that we can um, try and develop a better system so that the messages um, about the safety issues get out to people and that they have the effect that, the, um, that Health Canada wants them to have. Let's talk a little bit about what happens when uh, a drug is found to be uh, risky. 
uh, because one assumes that before a drug is introduced into the marketplace, Dr. Lection, that an, a whole series of a battery of tests and performance evaluation has taken place. And only after a rigorous uh, testing schedule uh, has this drug been approved for consumption in the first place. So where's, where's the breakdown between the approval of this drug after multiple trials and a discovery somewhere down the road that, oops, uh, maybe there are other consequences that we didn't recognize in the first place. So there are a number of um, ways that the the system breaks down. So the first one is that the trials that you were talking about typically only go on for um, maybe two months, three months, um, but some side effects don't show up in that period of time. It sure. take a year, mm-hmm. two years. Second, um, when drugs are being tested, they're being tested in very selective groups in the population. And typically that means middle-aged people, um, mostly men, who have only have one problem, the problem that the drug is being tested for, mm-hmm. and aren't taking any other drugs. So in that group of people, we have a fairly good idea about what, um, what the effects of the drug are going to be, what the side effects are going to be. But when the drug hits the market and your 85-year-old grandmother who's taking 10 other medications gets prescribed this, we have no idea what's going to happen to her. And when your six-year-old son gets prescribed this drug, we have no idea what's going to happen to him. Um, And the final way that this breaks down is um, that if you want to be sure of seeing a particular side effect in a drug, uh, say one time in a thousand, Mm -hmm. you need to test 3,000 people to be sure that you'll see this. And most drugs before they come on the market are only tested in three to 5,000 people. So any rare side effect won't be seen in those trials before the drug is marketed. Now, sometimes those side effects are minimal. You get a, a rash that lasts for a day or two and right. then it goes away. Mm-hmm. But other times those side effects can be very serious um, and we just won't have seen those. So we have to wait until the drug is being used by a lot more people um, and then they show up. And as, if they're very serious, that can mean that the drug's going to be pulled from the market. Interesting, because, you know, uh, when, when we're watching late night television, and this happens more often than not at that time of day, uh, we see ads, and they usually go on for two minutes uh, talking about a specific drug, and it always starts off with the couple walking on the beach. Uh, and, you know, he's got a problem, and he's taking this. And, uh, you know, lots of beauty shots and uh, all the rest of it. At one point or another, the voiceover announcer says, uh, some uh, side effects of taking said drug may be... And rattles off this list, Doc, of terrible things that could happen to you and and required by law to include all of those uh, possibilities. But nonetheless, at the end of the commercial, you find yourself going, gee, is it actually worth it because of the potential for all of these possible side effects? That's a requirement of U.S. law. Do we have the same in Canada? We don't have the same in Canada because we don't allow the same kind of advertising. Um, So in Canada, there are really two kinds of ads that you can see on TV for drug for prescription drugs. So the first one is the um, what's called disease awareness ad. 
Is your hair falling out? Um, do you have toenail fungus? Right, right. There's a, new drug, there's a new drug on the market for this. Go and talk to your doctor about it. So God, it doesn't okay. mention the name of the drug. The second kind of ad, um, the most, the example that I remember the best are the ones um, where you have a woman coming out with her husband into the um, getting into a cab, and they both have these big smiles on their faces, and then you see the word Viagra flashed across the screen. <laughs> right. Um, and that kind of ad doesn't mention what the drug is used for, right. although the ad certainly lets you guess. Um, and that neither of those kinds of ads are required to list any side effects of the drug. And uh, so I say because of the different style of advertising for these very specific drugs on American television that deal, they're usually blood thinners or, or that sort of uh, statin categories. And we just don't allow advertising of that nature in Canada at all. So I, I suppose in that sense, it gives us a little bit of comfort. You know, Dr. Lection, that uh, the reason for this conversation, in addition to learning about how governments manage risky medications in the marketplace, uh, this is also leading to a discussion of the vaccine that you and I and every other person in this country, fingers crossed, hopes to see available for mass consumption uh, within, say, the next 12 months or so. Uh, we need to take a break for the news, but I want you to talk to us about how uh, how manufacturers ensure uh, safety for mass uh, doses of vaccine like that. But I'm curious, just before we take the news break, Dr. Lection, is it likely Canadians will have a vaccine in the next 12 months? It's hopeful. Um, there are over 100 vaccine, different vaccines that are being trialed. Um, but at this point, we just don't know. Um, and also, the vaccine, how effective the vaccine is going to be, um, even if it's approved, is another issue. They're looking at a minimum requirement of 50%. So a vaccine may only protect half the people who get it. And it may mean that you, instead of getting a serious condition, you get a mild condition. We're in conversation with Dr. Joel Lection at the University of Toronto. Dr. Lection is an emergency room physician, as well as being an associate professor of um, family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. And he wrote a piece for theconversation.com called Drug Safety. Health Canada must act faster when approved medications show risk. And Dr. Lection, I want to skip down to the very... A concluding paragraph that you wrote in this article, because this this is a kind of loaded stuff. Health Canada pays much less attention to the safety of drugs already on the market than it does to getting new drugs approved. Over the past 10 years, Health Canada has consistently devoted three times as much money and three times as many people to getting new drugs onto the market compared to making sure that drugs already being sold are safe. 
And then you go on to say in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, with all of us hoping for new treatments and a vaccine, it's crucial that we know we can rely on Health Canada to make sure that new drugs and vaccines are safe. And if we want that assurance, we need to insist that Health Canada takes drug safety seriously and spends what is necessary. So they're cutting corners uh, in in areas uh, that uh, are deeply concerning to you then. Um, they're not cutting corners so much as they're not putting enough money into the um, into the drug safety system. And I think partly that's because um, since the mid-1990s, uh, half of the money that um, Health Canada uses to run its drug, um, drug regulatory system has been coming from what are called user fees. This is money that drug companies pay to Health Canada to, when they file to get their drugs onto the market mm-hmm. or for a number of other activities that Health Canada undertakes um, with respect to prescription drugs. So what we have is a situation where Health Canada is getting money from two different um, sources. So one is public money, that's your and my tax dollars. Yes. And the other is the drug companies. Um, that are paying Health Canada, and I think that that sets up a um, a system where Health Canada has really two sets of priorities. One is protecting public health, right, and the other is um, making sure that the drug companies are reasonably happy with what it's doing. And I think that's wrong. That's a mistake. That Health Canada should not be concerned about <clears throat> what the drug companies think. Health Canada should be concerned about public health. We um, there is a memo that circulated um, sometime in the mid to late 1990s from the person who was at that point the director of the um, organization of the part of Health Canada that um, approves new drugs, and he was talking about who the client is, and he was saying that the client is the person that pays um, the money for your organization. Um, and that was meant to read as the drug company. Right, yeah. Uh, is there, it does, it, and I'm not trying to increase or up the paranoia level at all here in Vancouver, but uh, it, in terms of the fees that Health Canada receives from drug companies, uh, it's a pro forma thing. Of course, if you want to have a drug approved, you have to go through this process, and you're going to have to write a check for X. Is there a system, Dr. Lection, in Canada where a, a drug company can pay a higher fee to have something fast-tracked? No. Um, you can't, Health Canada doesn't allow that. Good. Um, but Health Canada does fast-track drugs that are thought to be significant advances on other medications or um, that treat diseases for which there's no current treatment. Um, unfortunately, Health Canada's ability to predict which drugs are actually going to um, meet those conditions once they're on the market is not very good. Um, they fast track about three times as many drugs as the number that actually proved to be major advances. And the other problem with fast tracking is that when the drugs actually hit the market, they're more likely to have safety problems <clears throat> because um, of the speed at which they go through the approval process. 
So we spend three times as much money and uh, devote three times as many people. So a lot of our resources, three times to a factor of three, getting new drugs onto the market compared to monitoring the existing marketplace for safety. So uh, would you see that uh, simply uh, uh, by way of rearranging spending priorities at Health Canada, Dr. Election, uh, taking some of the money and personnel from the the new uh, uh, coming on stream department to the monitoring for constant safety team that's one way of looking at the um of how to do things the other way is that um parliament (coughs) should um give more money to health canada um so that it can fulfill its functions um health canada has been adding responsibilities for years in terms of what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, the reason that the drug companies are, are paying the money is that, health ca- is that the government has not been willing to allocate the necessary um, revenue to Health Canada to fulfill all those functions. So you've got a situation where Health Canada either has to cut back on what it's doing, which nobody would want, or it has to look for other sources of money, and the most obvious source of money are the drug companies. So what I and a number of other people are advocating is get rid of the user fees, go back to pay to financing the drug regulatory system out of tax dollars, All right, right. and give Health Canada the, the amount of money that it really needs to do its job appropriately. Don't leave it in any way dependent on the pharmaceutical industry that it's supposed to be regulating as a source of revenue. Uh, and It makes a great deal of sense. Dr. Election, recently in the United States, several major pharmaceutical companies signed a compact which they directed at the American people, basically saying that we agree amongst ourselves that no vaccine will be released to the general population unless it meets certain basic standards of safety and quality. This was done voluntarily by the drug manufacturers, I think in some ways to allay some fears that are rampant in the American population with respect to vaccines. Uh, Did it give you any confidence at all, and did the move surprise you? Um, It didn't surprise me. I mean, first of all, um, I think that this is a good... Um, thing that the drug companies did, but I don't believe that they did it just out of altruism. The drug companies stand to make a lot of money from this vaccine. Sure they do. Um, And the more people that use it, the more money that they'll make. So that this is, I think, a combination of two things. As I said, uh, a desire to make sure that public health is increased and the desire to make as much money as they can from the vaccine. Okay, so uh, again, though, I I would think to some extent, do you think it allayed any of the fears or concerns that people have with respect to to the quality of vaccine? I would hope so, but unfortunately, um, in the United States and in a lot of other countries, there is this belief that the drug companies are evil, um, you know, that they go around, they have horns coming out of their heads. Yeah. Um, and 
it, I think that it doesn't matter what drug companies say to a number of people that their belief that the vaccines are going are a plot by yeah. Bill Gates to implant chips in people. Um, that nothing the drug companies say is going to alleviate those fears. Yeah, good point. Dr. Joe Election, thanks very much for joining us this morning, sir. It's a very good piece. I'm commending it to my listeners at theconversation.com. It's entitled Drug Safety, Health Canada Must Act Faster When Approved Medications Show Risks. The author, Joe Election, uh, emergency physician and uh, professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Election, a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. We must do this again sometime. Thanks very much, Sterling, and have a nice day. Same to you, sir. Joe Election at the University of Toronto. We have a guest on the line who is going to connect some very important dots for us. Our guest is the chief executive officer of a Vancouver-based company called Artemis. It's a pleasure to welcome Charles Conroy to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Charles, it's great to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about two, the two dots that I'd like you to connect. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and your firm, Artemis, is, uh, is very much involved in producing isotopes that are Im- Im- critical to diagnosing uh, various types of cancer, including prostate cancer, Correct. That's correct. So what we do at Artemis is we make a specific isotope called gallium-68. And this isotope, along with some new drugs that are being developed and will be released in the next 12 to 18 months, are going to be the new way to test for prostate cancer, which will be both less expensive and quicker than the current PSA, than the current PSA test out on the market today. And what, what's, uh, can, we, can we just sort of briefly look at what, what the existing technology, Charles, is versus what, what promising new technology you're going to bring to the table in the next 18 months? Sure. So the current method of testing is just to test for prostate-specific antigens in the blood. And that's just a chemical test that's done with a blood draw at your doctor's office or sent off to a lab. Okay. What we're able to do in the future is actually be able to take a very, very small amount of radioactivity, tag it with a drug, and inject it into someone, and it will be taken up specifically by the cancer cells in their body which not only tells us if they have the cancer, but also lets us get some information on how much they would have and how difficult it would be to treat. Right, and of course, that's the key, not only with prostate cancer, and this is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, but virtually all types of cancer, The the you, you as a human person stand a much better chance of being able to deal with the cancer if your diagnosis is early, correct? That, that's correct. And we can definitely, we can test and be able to see a, a much smaller level of cancer in the body than the current tests have. And as you mentioned, that that early diagnosis and then early followed by earlier treatment really is what is the key. Now, Artemis is a Vancouver company. You've been around for about 10 years. You were spun off from the Triumph Project at UBC. How did that happen? Explain how the, the split came and why. So Triumph is mostly in the research sector, and yes. we, we were granted and worked with them very closely for about the first 10 years of our development. Uh, about the last, over the last two years, we were actually taken uh, kind of private, if you will, with them still being an investor, because we now have commercial use for basically what was funded by the government and other sources before this. So thank you for the funding from this. We've actually been able to take this and turn it into a commercial enterprise. And uh, so does Triumph then, or has the funding been, Charles, to create these isotopes? 
It was. And so essentially it was to create not necessarily the isotopes themselves, but the ability to create them in large enough volumes and at a low enough cost that we could make it available for a large number of patients. So and before gallium came into, before our technology came into play with gallium, you might be able to treat one or two patients per day in the Vancouver area with this type of study. Uh-huh. With ours, we'll be able to treat thousands of patients a day if we wanted to. And, and so you, you have used the word radioactive in our conversation as well. And I'm curious to know where, where, where that factors into gallium. Explain what gallium is, if you wouldn't mind, please. Sure. So gallium is actually a radioactive substance, and when we're actually able to tag that with a certain drug, so we we put it and kind of attach it to a drug, that will be taken up by a cancer cell in the body, and once once it's done so, it will give off a small amount of energy, which can be picked up by a camera and imaged and seen by the physician as a point of light. So we can actually go through and see on a, through a camera, a special camera, if you will, mm-hmm. um, where a patient would have that cancer and how that and how much of that cancer would be there. So we, I, I would just say the easiest, the easiest way to think about it is it's a very small amount of radiation. It would definitely be less than you would get on a, on an international flight or even that you would get sitting in a day at the beach. Ah, so this sounds pretty groundbreaking from the point of view of being a technology that would not only work here in Vancouver, but it would be a universal technology. Is there competition for what you do, or are you at the tip of the spear? Uh, There's a bit of competition, but I would also say we're at the tip of the spear today. And what's really exciting about this technology is there's a follow-on piece to this that we can image with the gallium. But even more exciting is we can take another type of isotope that will also be producing you know, called lutetium, and that we can we can follow up after we can see where the cancer is. We can use the same drug to take this higher energy radioisotope directly to the cancer cell and actually be able to obliterate or blast open that cell. And so now we'll be able to treat this cancer without doing chemotherapy or without doing external radiation where it would have to pass through a patient's body. It will just go and specifically target the cancer cells. That's amazing. So that's really stuff. what's going to be the next. Yeah, it's going to be the really next exciting kind of wave of oncology. And I would say how we treat prostate cancer specifically in the next five years is going to change drastically. So very, very exciting. It certainly is. And just to, for, for my own uh, layman's clarification, Charles, if you don't mind, the isotopes that you're creating for this diagnostic process uh, differ. They're created in a laboratory as opposed to, say, a rare earth metal that you actually have to go dig out of the ground. Or uh, am, am I confusing the two? Yeah, so we can take uh, we can take metal that's dug out of the ground essentially and make it radioactive. So it might be stable, but we'll take it in a in a very localized place to a cyclotron. Which, believe it or not, your larger medical institutions have cyclotrons already in the basement to do things like PET scans. If you've heard of that, sure. Polyton emission tomography. So they're able to make these on site with really at what we call inert metals. They can kind of make them radioactive, then use them, and there's no no dangerous waste byproducts right. either. So that's the big advantage to this kind of technology over the older technology where we would have taken it from an old nuclear medicine, an old nuclear reactor, if you will. We would take some of that waste and, and turn that into medicine, but now we're actually able to produce it much more efficiently and much more safely on site. Well, that sounds fantastic news, Charles, and we do appreciate your sharing it with us. A final question to you, sir. I guess your biggest fan these days must be the Canadian Cancer Society. Uh, they're pretty happy. I'll they're, bet. they're pretty happy because it's going to certainly, you know, change the lives of patients. And we're 
where, as we said, there'll be a drug coming out to market. There was actually an FDA submission earlier this week, so we expect that to come out in the next 18 to 20, or the next 12 to 18 months. Okay. And after that, there'll also be a breast cancer treatment agent that will probably come out between 24 and 36 months from now. So a pretty exciting field to be to be in today. Well, I was going to say, because this sounds like if it works for one particular form of cancer, it can be expanded to include other types as well. And there you are already moving on to breast cancer. So we wish you and your colleagues, Mr. Conroy, considerable success and great speed uh, with accomplishing this. It's a wonderful technology, and we're grateful for your time in explaining it to us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Charles Conroy is the CEO of Artemis right here in British Columbia. A-R-T-M-S. It's named after the Greek goddess of the hunt. And it's fascinating conversation. It's an interesting stuff. And it's right here in Vancouver. Joined on the line by Brent Paulington from Ex- Employment Express Professionals. Got a new survey out. And it's not a good Brent. Good morning, by the way. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, just talking about the new survey entitled COVID-19 Takes a Toll on Wage increases. This is a national survey. Tell us what you found, Brent, please. Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing is a lot of people in the market that are applying for jobs. Uh, Obviously, a decrease in the number of jobs that have been available recently. I think a study came out that there was over a million people unemployed still out of the three million that were originally uh, impacted through COVID, and uh, as a result, it's it's putting uh, you know the hiring people in a position where they can be more competitive and ask more people and either drive the wages down or look for people with uh, with far greater skills for the same uh, for the same type of position. So, is that universal? Is it across the board? Are there, for example, Brent variations? Are there some markets that are hotter than others? Uh, and are you seeing any decreases across the board? Yeah, definitely, lots of of, of change throughout uh, the industry. So there, there's absolutely positions, and I've I've specifically seen it last week where employers have elected to pay more for people in positions that are skilled. We've seen it in the office where they were looking for uh, even just entry-level admin and, and office management and were willing to pay above their regular grade to ensure that they get a really great person. Also place someone in a uh, uh, like a, an industrial position and same thing, the employer chose to uh, to pay 2 $3 over what the person was actually uh, marketing, them, the, the rate they were marketing themselves at, uh, again, to ensure for them um, stability and that the person wouldn't, uh, wouldn't look for any opportunities. But I've also seen uh, in positions where uh, less skill is involved, where there's a reluctancy to increase rates, especially on the small business side, uh, just out of uh, a fear of what's potentially going to happen with the market and overextension for, for employers and, and budgets and operating uh, expenses and, and just doing their best to uh, to ensure that they're they're taking it uh, maybe not taking advantage is the right word but seeing lots of applicants uh, and and in a position where they can select uh, you know whoever they like at the rate that they're you know interested in putting the position out at. So it's pretty safe to assume, Brent, that uh, any position that gets advertised uh, in the job market these days is pretty keenly sought after. If you if you publicize uh, an, an opening, it's pretty safe to predict there'll be a competitive uh, rush. Uh, of people to uh, go after that spot especially for us right now we work in in a number of different markets uh on the uh, light industrial side the skilled trade aspect we are not seeing a ton of applicants and would love to see more candidates on that front really Uh, but we did run 
we did run a competition the other day for a uh, an office, like you said, an office support position. And within 24 hours, we had a posting up, had over 100 applicants. Okay. So that that's more yeah. than I thought. That's more the the, uh, the the situation that I expected to hear about. So where then are there situations, Brent? And this is curious. Uh, uh, now you've really piqued my curiosity here. Where are there situations where jobs are literally going unfilled uh, today? If if you're getting some areas where you got hundred people applying for a situation, what kinds of positions don't get any applications at all? Yeah, I find the hardest places in Vancouver, we serve specifically the Vancouver yes. market, uh, would be those skilled trades positions. Uh, we do a, a posting for carpenters, plumbers, electricians, um, getting into, in, in, into any of those kind of skilled positions, drivers, forklift drivers. It's extremely difficult to find people, and especially for downtown, a lot of times we will get the occasional candidate who is skilled, uh, but they've, uh, or they're living outside of the Vancouver area, getting out into, you know, Langley or deep into Richmond, right. uh, Abbotsford out in that way. And it, uh, the, the commute's a huge factor, especially if it's a company that's working on the North Shore. It's been exceedingly difficult for those companies to find skilled workers uh, that aren't making a, a commute that disincentivizes them to, to stay with the company long term. And eventually, when a company does come along that's closer to home, uh, they obviously end up taking that opportunity. Now, I don't want to sound like a hopeless cynic, uh, but let you use the word and I want to follow up on disincentivizing, Brent, uh, because there are some concerns and we've heard it from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and many other sources on this program live that some of the benefit programs provided by governments, mostly the feds, are in fact turning into disincentives. What do you make of these claims? Yeah, and one of the things that uh, that we're a little uh, fearful is with the transition of the CERB to switching to EI is that there's going to be a lot of people that are following the old EI uh, mandate and there are people that are going to have to be applying for jobs but maybe not necessarily interested in working uh, uh-huh. to stay on the subsidy. Uh, and so it's going to make it even potentially harder for employers if you do put a posting up. There will be an influx of people, but it'll be a false sense of, of reality um, because they'll be inflating the numbers and there won't truly necessarily be somebody there that's actually looking for the job and just looking to continue to be able to stay on the uh, uh, the wage subsidy or EI. Somebody applying for the job, Brent, because that way they get to say, well, I applied to company X, but, you know, I didn't get it. But I did apply, and you can hear, yep. say, here's my, a copy of my application. So they, the, the going Absolutely. through the formality of applying without ever actually intending to follow through, that must be re- more than a little annoying to hiring uh, HR-type people. Yeah, and again, I mean, for especially in the office, what we're seeing right now, and it's not necessarily where I would typically see a lot of that, and we haven't seen it yet, but again, we're just, it's uh, a huge competition right now is the, um, you know, when, when, when the pandemic hit and there was the, the perception of, of, of shutdown, uh, whether it was uh, necessary or not for certain businesses, there there's still a ton of people looking for those types of jobs and not as many of them available. So that in itself you know, drives that competition up. And then, yes, uh, you know, again, my fear is that uh, we're going to see a lot of people that are applying just to just to kind of check the boxes.
Yeah. Well, let's uh, wrap this thing up by taking as positive a, a spin as we possibly can, Brent, and reminding our listeners, as you do when you when you join us, and we do appreciate it each and every time, where, for example, tomorrow morning, I doubt there's a lot of hiring going on on a Sunday, but where tomorrow morning, if a person who's just looking to get a job for crying out loud, where are they hiring this week in Vancouver? Yeah. Uh, we'd love to have them apply to us at Express Employment. Uh, but yeah, I, I continue to go back and say WorkBC is a great resource. A lot of employers will rely on them to, to help candidates and help them through the process. Uh, Indeed's one of the, 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 the resources that we use uh, for more labor-related uh, jobs, Craigslist. Uh, and then Facebook has actually uh, started to prove to be a really good resource for job seekers. And what type of work specifically is most in demand this week in Vancouver? Yes, skilled uh, workers uh, in uh, in any trades right now. Okay. Brent Pollington, uh, Express Employment Professionals would be uh, happy to help you out if you're one of those people looking for a job. I suspect Brent has a few employers who'd be happy to meet you. Thanks for this, Brent. We'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Brent Pollington from Express Employment Professionals here in Vancouver. As uh, we move forward on the program today, delighted to have you with us. Uh, coming up in uh, our next hour, we're going to check in with law professor Jeff Myers up at Thompson Rivers University. This about the appointment of yesterday by President Trump of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the uh, to be nominated at least by Mr. Trump to fulfill the uh, position on the United States Supreme Court vacated by the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course, it's a constitutional issue. Uh, the a few years ago when there was an opportunity to replace uh, a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court, the Republicans at the time uh, in charge refused to entertain Mr. Obama's nominee Merrick Garland. And now the Democrats are expecting the same treatment and they're not going to get it. So uh, what does this all mean and how is it expected to play out? Uh, Jeff Myers is a law professor who is also licensed to practice law in both Canada and the United States. So he's got a, a kind of an inside track on what's going to happen, and it'll be interesting to hear his opinions. Right now, here's a guy who hears a lot of opinions from a lot of Canadians all the time for a living. It's a pleasure to welcome Christian Bork to the program. Mr. Bork is the executive vice president with Leger and Associates, the polling outfit, uh, joining us from Montreal. Christian, good morning. Thanks for being with us good. today. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, you've done a lot of surveys recently, and uh, one of the ones that uh, we wanted to focus in on a couple this morning, Christian, but most recently uh, is the work you've done uh, on masks. Tell us about the yeah. survey, because it's quite recent, within the last two weeks, on Canadi- changing Canadian attitudes or not regarding masks. Yeah, actually, we uh, we did a previous survey uh, back in in uh, late June where we did ask should masks be mandatory in all indoor public places across the country. Right. Back then, about three quarters of Canadians said yes, they should. Now this is up into the mid eighties as of today. So so it, there is increasing support for uh, masks being made mandatory um, in public places. It's interesting as well that because if we hear a lot about the anti-mask protests from you know, the U.S. to Europe and, and so on, and yes. even in Toronto over the weekend, in Montreal a couple of weeks ago, and uh, but there's not a lot of support for the anti-maskers in Canada. Uh, about 1 in 10 Canadians support the protests, as opposed to close to 9 in 10 who oppose them. Um, I think it closely matches to one of the questions we had in the survey, where close to 90% of Canadians believe it is their civic duty 
to wear the mask out in public, uh, which is not the case in the U.S. We do the same polling in the United States, and over there, between 30 and 40 percent uh, of Americans say they or they believe that wearing the mask goes against their civil liber- liberties and therefore tend to support the anti-maskers. Yeah. Uh, but the, the case in Canada is very different. Yeah, the question, I'm just looking at your website, Christian, and one of the questions you ask, and, and you actually have it available for people who want to comment on it, the question is, are you wearing a mask because you think it's the right thing to do or because you feel obligated? How did people respond <laughs> to that part? Well, it's, it's three out of four say they believe it's the right thing to do, but one in four do it because of social pressure. They feel they should be doing it. Uh, and it's not out of a, it's not that much fun wearing it either. I, I mean, we, we must admit. Uh, so about a quarter of Canadians are doing it to some extent reluctantly. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you look at support for wearing the mask as opposed to opposition to it, um, some people, even though they're not, they're doing it sort of grudgingly, uh, kind of accept that it's the right thing to do right now. Mm-hmm. Now, we're hearing an awful lot from Premier Ford and uh, Legault in, in your province and uh, Mr. Horgan out here uh, about a second wave. And in fact, we've seen public medical officers of health uh, change the rules in Ontario. They've got bars and nightclubs closing down early and uh, limiting sales after 10 or 11 o'clock. These sorts of measures are being introduced to try and arrest a second wave uh, to, in order to preclude some kind of lockdown, something none of us want. But you did address the notion of a second wave in your recent survey. Tell us what you found. Yeah, I think it goes with the fact that people are more supportive of wearing masks today because three-quarters of Canadians believe that there will be a second wave. Mm-hmm. When we ask the question, we've been asking this question since March, do you believe the worst of the crisis is ahead of us or is behind us? Today, we basically have the same results that we had in April, which is a majority of Canadians believe that the worst of the crisis is ahead of us. Um, so this notion of a second wave, and I think governments and, and, and premiers and, and the prime minister is sort of cooing in on this public opinion that they know is well aware that there should be and probably that we are in a second wave of, of the disease. So they're trying to keep people motivated in, in, in doing what's right to try to prevent it. But Canadians are worried, and we ask we ask the question since March again: uh, Do you fear contracting COVID nineteen? And we were in at the mid sixties in in March. We're back into the mid sixties today, even really? over the summer. Fear actually went down a little bit mm-hmm. uh, during the summer months, but now it's back up to where it was uh, back in the spring, back in the uh, days we don't want to go back to. So, in other words, uh, basically, we're back at a point where two out of every three Canadians is still extremely concerned about catching COVID-19. Absolutely. And and the fear of going back into a form of lockdown is the same uh, as the fear of contracting the disease. So, so roughly, and you're right, two out of three Canadians are worried that we they, they will catch the disease and worried as well that we'll go back to the, the spring lockdown that we all sort of remember. Well, in his address uh, to the nation uh, the other night following the speech from the throne, the prime minister, it was pretty much a political exercise, but there were a few facts involved, a few, uh, one of which was, point blank, we're in the second wave. So, I mean, that pretty much seals the deal from the point of view of official recognition, but there was no comment at all about any kind of uh, additional measures uh, vis-a-vis a lockdown, Christian. I think people are quite concerned that that could come about 
about. And and your numbers seem to agree. Absolutely. Again, it's it's that two out of three Canadians who fear uh, going back into a lockdown. And if you look at some announcements that were made in Ontario, you were right, and as well as, as in Quebec, uh, where they're starting to close bars a little bit earlier yeah. at night again. Um, I mean, both premiers are saying we're trying to do this to prevent a lockdown. So will Canadians respond? Uh, because our reaction last spring was uh, was an example for the world to see how sort of disciplined Canadians were generally um, in, in uh, respecting safety measures. Um, and I think they're trying to appeal to the same sense of motivation and civic duty that they were last spring to, to prevent restaurants closing again and, yes. and, and malls closing again. Christian, I'm, I'm curious about a general sense of fatigue here because you talked about in the United States, people are righteously indignant and you're violating my civil liberties by requiring me to, me to make a mask or wear a mask and all of this sort of very, very dug in uh, positions against all of that, where you see Canadians appear at least on the surface to be more cooperative. But I wonder mm-hmm. uh, whether you sense a certain COVID fatigue in our population. Yes, we're wearing masks and yes, we're hopeful there'll be a vaccine. And no, we bloody well don't want another lockdown. Uh, And we're getting a little stretched in terms of our willingness to do the right thing. Absolutely. Uh, we we asked the measure the, the the question. Have you relaxed on any of the following? Practicing social distancing, uh, always wearing the mask when you're out in public, frequently washing your hands. Uh, you, you know the the basic measures that were put in place last spring. Right. And in total, sixty three percent of of Canadians, and that exclude that includes fifty eight percent of people out in BC who say, uh, you know, what well, I, I must admit that I've relaxed some portion. Uh, of the measures that were put in place versus social distancing. 44% of Canadians say, I don't practice social distancing the way I used to back, back in the spring. Right. So, so there are some issues. Is the mask making us feel safer? Um, and we're not social distancing as much as we, that, that may be an hypothesis. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, we were willing to go for this for a while, but now it's starting to be a long while. So yes, two out of three of us have actually relaxed. Um, the way we observe public safety measures. And I suppose our public health officials will respond by saying, you see, you let your guard down a little bit, and voila, the second wave. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, the thing about this sort of motivation is, is part of it is explained by the degree to which we trust our governments, and, and that has not been lacking. That amount of trust has been there for, uh, for Canadians. Uh, however, as this sort of goes on and on, at some point, Canadians may decide not to listen anymore. Yeah. So hopefully we haven't reached that point yet. Right. Uh, but maybe it's the fear of that second wave that, that should fuel um, a sense of going back to stricter measures. Uh, Christian, I, I need you to, to stand by because I want to take a break. Just before we do, because uh, I want to talk about back to school. And now that we've got a, a week or two under our belts, I'm wondering whether our attitudes have changed at all since we since you surveyed us prior to school opening up. But I wonder, just very briefly, uh, what, have you talked to Canadians about our expectations vis-a-vis a vaccine? Yes. I, Canadians are, to some extent, divided. Um, about half of, of people say they would trust a vaccine, but then three-quarters say they would actually take it if it was available. So right. I think we're still 
kind of concerned, worried uh, that it may become too soon. Uh, we did ask about the Russian vaccine when it, there was that rumor uh, of, of a, um, a vaccine in Russia that was available. And people said no. Yeah, uh, right. They, they did not trust the source. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm laughing only because, I mean, it's Putin's vaccine. Come on. I wouldn't take it. Hey, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Christian Bork is joining us from Montreal this morning. Mr. Bork is the executive vice president with Leger, the polling people. And they've been very busy this month of September. Earlier in the month, Christian, uh, before uh, Canadian schools in most provinces resumed classes. I know that some of the private schools in Quebec... Uh, started some of their classes in late August, but most Canadian schools opened up in the first or second week of September. And that's when you got busy uh, soliciting opinions coast to coast from Canadian parents about back to school. What did you find then? And what are you finding now that we've got a couple of weeks of school experience under our belts? Yeah, we did ask during that first week of back to school for most for most Canadian uh, children, um, and Canadians were divided in almost two equal halves. When we asked, should uh, children go back to school uh, this fall, 52% of Canadians said yes, 35 said no, and another 14 said, you know what, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. And, it, and there were wide variances across the country. Where there's the most support for back to school was in Quebec at 73%, but in BC, for example, 38% um of BC citizens said yes, they should go back, and 46 said no. Yes, uh, and and BC along with uh, uh, Ontario are the two provinces where there was more opposition to back to school uh, than support for. When we actually asked parents of school age children back then, uh, roughly not even two out of three said yes, I want to send my children back to school. Versus almost one third who said I would prefer to keep them home. Right. Um, I think it ju- it does legitimize the, the sort of the hybrid models that that some provinces have gone to, and and sort of being extremely cautious uh, with back to school. Now we're going back to uh, to the field to survey again. Now that some cases of COVID have popped up in schools across the country, um, how much is that sort of actually weighing in? And uh, should we are expect our children to be back home, being homeschooled? Uh, if that wave two is as uh, as severe as some predict. Yeah, Christian, when you talked about that, when you were talking to moms and dads across Canada about uh, sending the kids back to school, did you also ask uh, uh, the reality check question, even though perhaps you are in favor of the notion of sending your children back to school, do you nonetheless expect some uptick or increase in COVID cases? Yes. Well, that's the, the main worry is that uh, Canadians believe uh, that children going back to school will have an impact on the number of COVID cases in Canada. It's inevitable. Uh, inevitable. And uh, and I think, you know, Canadians were quite right in suspecting that that could be the case. But when we actually asked if ever there was a case of COVID in, at your school, what would you do? Good question. Uh, yeah, a majority of parents said, well, I'm going to keep my children home for a while. And some even said, 25% said, I'll keep them home indefinitely until this goes away. So, uh, so the concern over, uh, over back to school is, uh, in fact, very important in Canada. I think it's something that 
we will all be monitoring closely. And, and of course, it, in uh, some provinces, British Columbia included, it forced the uh, provincial governments to um, per- pivot, to use the buzzword of the, of the summer, uh, to a new educational model. In other words, to beef up the home option that uh, they had always had. We've, there's always been homeschooling right across Canada, Christian. That's been a, a fact mm-hmm. of life forever. But the, the degree to which homeschooling is occurring in this country is unprecedented right now. And some provinces, including B.C., were kind of caught flat-footed. Yes, well, I mean, it's a model that that, uh, we only had a few weeks to put in place. Um, I think part of the reason why the support for going back to school was highest in the province of Quebec is that there was, for grade schoolers anyway, there was already a back-to-school in May, sort of in late May uh, last spring, and then there was no uh, evidence of cases of COVID back then uh, emanating from the school. So I think support is a bit higher. But now that cases are popping up across the province here as well uh, of COVID in classrooms, I think probably support uh, for going back to sort of a full-blown five-day week at school is diminishing as we speak. Interesting, because, of course, we had that dry run scenario here in B.C. too, Christian. In June, we mm-hmm. had two or three weeks where those parents who were comfortable, comfortable enough uh, sent their kids back to school, basically yeah. to give the education system a chance to have a look at what the fall might look like, give them a chance to experiment with social distancing and, and, and various other factors that are going to be uh, confronting them when school resumed in the fall. But given that dry run, the difference between B.C. and Quebec is quite remarkable. With the dry run under their belts in Quebec, they said, OK, vast majority, send them back. In B.C., a huge percentage said, no, I'm not comfortable at all. Yeah, I, I think. And, and when we look at our data overall on COVID, uh, two provinces stand out nationally in terms of being extra cautious, extra careful um, about the disease and about how we handle it from a public uh, health perspective, and it's always been BC and Ontario uh, mm. that are the two most prudent provinces when it comes to when we survey the population of those two provinces. So I think there's an extra challenge, and and, and now that BC is going into a, a provincial election, uh, there's a growing or there's a more important challenge to those two provincial governments in Ontario and BC compared to some other provinces where the the willingness to go back to a form of normal, uh, whatever that means anymore, Mm -hmm. is is higher. Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Quebec would be at the other end of the spectrum uh, compared to, uh, to BC and Ontario that always tend to stand out on being more careful, prudent, but also being more disciplined about, about uh, how we should, uh, as Canadian citizens, uh, basically behave in these circumstances. Christian, only 30 seconds for the final question to you. We are grateful for your time. It's good to have you back with us this morning. Atlantic Canada has set themselves aside from the rest of the country with their own little bubble all summer long and very few cases as a result of it. Are they the happiest in the country? They're, they're basically the ones that are the most confident uh, about tackling the disease. They also tend to display a high trust in their provincial governments. And look, Mr. Higgs, from a minority scenario, conservative government in New Brunswick, now is a majority government elected during COVID. Interesting stuff. Christian Bork, thanks for this. Great to have you back. We'll talk again, sir.
Keep up the good hey, work. My pleasure. There's Christian Bork in Montreal this morning, Executive VP with Leger on CKNW Weekend Mornings. Much controversy this weekend in the United States surrounding the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett by President Trump to the vacant seat of the United States Supreme Court, of course, vacated by the late uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died just a few days ago. Here to talk about what happens next is Jeffrey Myers. Dr. Myers is a law professor at Thompson Rivers University, who uh, as also licensed to practice the law in both Canada and the United States. Professor Myers, Jeff, good morning. Oh, good morning. It's uh, nice to be with you, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Jeff. It's been a while since we talked. Uh, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mm-hmm. replacement is going to, uh, could be, Amy Coney Barrett, who, descri- mm-hmm. who describes herself as uh, she was mentored and clerked for Judge Antonin Scalia. Mm-hmm. And she describes her approach to the law as being very similar to his. She says the law should be in, in, enforced by the courts as it is written, not mm-hmm. not to be interpreted by the courts, which seems to be the Canadian preference in terms of the way our Supreme Court uh, acts. Uh, Mr. Justice Scalia was very much a literalist, and it appears he, uh, Madam Justice uh, Barrett could be as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an accurate description of their sort of the, the two different judicial philosophies that have been attention on the bench for some time now, and I think the significance of Miss uh, of Judge Barrett's uh, likely appointment will be that she'll create a judge that has a, a bench that has six judges who are on the more conservative side of the equation. Right. And again, do as you describe, prefer what's called an original or originalist or textualist interpretation, particularly of the Constitution, rather than a progressive or a purposive one, which are also right that the, not only the the now much smaller minority side of the U.S. bench prefers, but is also generally preferred, for example, as a mode of interpretation in Canada. And the reason that those two modes of interpretation tend to tell you something about the politics of the judge is because a purposive interpretation means that you're looking to the purpose of Parliament in the Canadian context or Congress in the U.S. Congress, uh, context of enacting the law and trying to give life to that purpose in an evolving way, which takes into account changing times right. and the idea that the drafters of any piece of legislation or statute couldn't have imagined every possibility and that social and interpretive norms change over time. Someone like Justice Scalia, someone like Justice Amy Barrett, and again, the, the more conservative side of the U.S. bench that's been built there over the last several decades they don't view the law that way. They think that the law should mean exactly what the reading on the page can bear as it was intended at the time it was written. Right. So in and, the case and, of the Constitution, and, that's 200 years ago. And they're very very, fair, very fond of the framers uh, u- utilizing that phrase in describing their positions on various uh, social issues and, and the laws pertaining to them. They, they do refer, they keep coming back to, well, the framers intended to say this, and and so that's, if that's what the framers wanted, that's what I'm sticking to. Yes, and I think it tracks, I think it's important to, to recognize the reality here that that tracks also a, a kind of religious, uh, doctrinal way of viewing the world. So those who take an originalist interpretation or a textualist interpretation are often very religious um, people who also take a similar view of the Bible as being like revelation, the Word of God, so that it's not subject to multiple interpretations It can only mean one thing or one truth, namely whatever God intended. Now, who's to say is that's a difficult question. But that same form of reasoning is then applied to the United States Constitution 
and the intention of the Founding Fathers, right. so it becomes like a secular Bible. And so what jeopardy, uh, from your perspective, of course, and the neighbor's perspective here across the fence north of mm-hmm. the 49th, what, what difference would this imbalance, as you see it, six to three conservative to liberal on the United States Supreme Court have for daily life in America? I think it's huge because it affects the legitimacy of the court because increasingly the values of Americans, the polling data is fairly clear, that the numerical majority of Americans, for example, support things like Barack Obama's um, um, uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, right. the ACA, and the coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. Right. Most Americans afford safe and accessible uh, abortion. Both of those things are things which will be seriously in question and will be before the court revisiting Roe versus Wade and the legality of the ACA insofar as it relates to pre-existing conditions. So if she is on the bench, those like though there's a potential that Roe versus Wade uh, will no longer be the law of the land. And there's also a potential that the ACA um, provisions on pre-existing conditions will be struck down. And those are two very good examples of things that are popular with most Americans, but not with the Republican base but will nevertheless make the court seem out of step and I think lose some of its legitimacy with Americans over a longer term. Yeah. And, yeah. Jeff, you said if she is uh, uh, confirmed. Right. Is that, that suggests a margin of possibility that she wouldn't be. Is that is that a real thing? I mean, I think she's very likely. I mean, if we're going into the, if, if people are relying on me to be placing bets, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a safe bet to say that she will be. I think that there's a bit of a wild card in there in that there's going to be some people around Mr. Trump, some of his advisors, who I think with good reason will say, actually, it's a mistake to confirm her prior to the election, right? Because if you have, you know, particularly, and one of the reasons he's looking to do this is because he knows with some of the base, particularly religious conservative uh, Christian voters, they are, view the Supreme Court appointments as very, very important. Yes. So, that he, he, so he may think that he'll be rewarded for this appointment, um, but it's possible that if this appointment is made, some of his base voters will be like, look, I don't like this guy personally. He's not really my kind of person. I just like that he's appointed these judges, and now he's done this. So I don't need to come out and vote. Others will vote to reward, but maybe some would vote just to ensure that he gets reelected and can complete the appointment. So there are some strategic reasons he may not want to appoint right now. The other reason he may not want to appoint right now is that may push the Democrats, if they are elected, to expand and start appointing more justices to the Supreme Court to offset that sort of a misrepresentation of the American people, which would be created. And the Constitution does not prohibit that. The I was just going to say. The says nothing about that. You see, I've heard this. I'm glad to have you with us this morning, Jeff, because I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it recently, because, of course, there is much controversy surrounding the timing here. And mm-hmm. just a few short years ago, when uh, Mr. Obama nominated uh, his nominee, the Republican Senate at the time said, that's just bad form, and we can't have that. And, of course, they've all completely changed their positions. Lindsay yeah. Graham being the most notable. But yes. now we've heard that, it okay, well, listen, if this imbalance does occur, mm-hmm. then the, the possibility of simply expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court remains yeah. very real. I did not know that. I did not know that the United States Constitution allows for more justices. I thought that was literally etched in stone. It's, 
look, for starters, you're right to mention that prior incident um, at the time. Of, I think it was 10 or 11 months out of the um, out of uh, out of the election last time, and uh, Mr. Obama um, wanted to nominate Merrick Garland, right. a very centrist and non-controversial jurist, by the way, to the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell refused, really, to the leader of the Senate, uh, and refused to give a hearing to, to Merrick Garland, saying that he believed there should be a new principle that a president shouldn't appoint. Uh, a, an, a judge within a year of an election. Now, there was no such principle, and the Constitution is also, again, these people on the right sometimes are not l- really c- consistent with their own values, right? Because a literal interpretation suggests that a president, even in the last second of his term, can appoint. Sure. But the Republicans took this position, and leading Republicans like Lindsey Graham and others said that, you know, they would have the same position where the shoe on the other foot. Well, here we are, the shoe's on the other foot. We're even much, much closer mm-hmm. to this you know, 40 days out of an election, and they were taking the opposite position. It's totally morally inconsistent. People can see that. Now, as far as the court, the question of the court numbers go, yes, the Congress can change the number of seats on the Supreme Court. And if you look through U.S. history, there have at times, at first I believe there were six, it worked its way up to seven, it worked its way up to nine, right. and eventually nine is in the late eight. I think it went up to ten at one point, and then down to nine since 1867. I think it hasn't been changed, so uh-huh. it's a strong convention. Okay, but it can be. It's not etched in stone after all. Right, just like um, Puerto Rico, for example, and Washington, and the District of Columbia can be. The Constitution allows them to become states, in which case it would totally change the um, distribution of electoral colleges and start making it very difficult for Republicans to get elected. They fear this scenario. They know this scenario is possible. Same with the elimination of the filibuster. And part of the reason they want to pack the court is because they know that once these changes are made and demographic realities come to bear over the next several decades, it will become increasingly uh, difficult for them to cobble together electoral majorities in a legitimate way. Absolutely. Colorful times indeed, and we do appreciate your taking a few moments to help us uh, sort of uh, clear the haze a little bit and see the facts for what they are. Jeff Myers, great to have you back. Thanks, Sterling. We'll talk again. Jeff Myers is a, a law professor at Thompson Rivers University up in Kamloops. There you go. Always a pleasure to welcome this next guest to the program. Ian Tostenson is president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? Well, I'm well, thank you. I've uh, up until this uh, this past week of well, smoke uh, piled upon the storm that cleared the smoke away. I was on a bit of a roll. Carol and I had done patios in uh, Olympic Village and Yale Town, New Westminster, White Rock. We were doing the circuit, Ian, and and on a bit of a roll. <laughs> then we got smoked out, and then the storms hit, and then you know the good weather is coming back. So I expect we'll be back on the patio circuit in the next day or two. But you know it's. Uh, and the cities, well, let's stay with patios to start things off, because the cities uh, in Vancouver and others being very cooperative in terms of giving life to patios beyond patio season. Bring on the heaters and the walls and that sort of just giving every opportunity to keep that money-making uh, part of the business alive. Is it going to make a difference, Ian? Well, it will, but before, I think we should get you a passport, so every time you go to a patio, you can tick off the box, and you get some reward at the end. Maybe well, I'd appreciate that. that. I wouldn't mind that at all. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you a white spot gift certificate or something, but, you know, here here's the deal. Um, for uh, the listeners, we are extending patios beyond October 31st, and and the province has extended the authorizing, the technical authorizations to actually October 2021, which means that these these temporary patios that we saw in Vancouver and other places 
uh, the summer will be allowed to continue. The question now is, uh, how do we winterize them? Sure. That's the, that's the discussion. You know, how much we can enclose them, how much we can heat them. But uh, I was just talking to a, a restaurant owner a few minutes ago, and the, the, the choke point that we're seeing right now is a development permit. So if you want to add any structure to your outdoor patio, you need a development permit, and that just takes a whole bunch of months. And so we're going to go after that, see if we can reduce that. But they're going to play a major role on the news last night. There was uh, a little restaurant, had a couple of barrels and a couple of seats, and that was the difference um, for him to be able to add a, to almost 80% capacity in his restaurant, mm. to have people uh, having a few drinks outside before they come in. So it's going to be an important strategy going into the, the fall. And I think what I'm seeing now is that people are buying more outdoor uh, furniture for the winter and heaters, I think we're getting ready to be outside. For, I think so. Yeah, uh, we, yeah this would be the, maybe the first and last time we have this opportunity. So it could be kind of fun. We had uh, Vancouver Councillor uh, Sarah Kirby Young on with us, and she's been a big booster of uh, patios and, and getting uh, whatever help uh, can be done at the council level to, for, to restaurateurs and, and breweries and other uh, serving industry uh, places around the city of Vancouver. And she was talking about the heating, and it's interesting you would bring that up so quickly because the preference, now it'll vary from municipality to municipality, but here in the city of Vancouver, Ian, the preference is that you go for an electric heater they'll they'll yep. they'll tolerate the propane models if they have to but you have to be able to explain to them we need the propane heaters because we can't do electrical because 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 otherwise <laughs> they want you to put in electrical but okay yeah, I think, one way or another you're going to be able to heat it yeah i know and, and, and that's you know the, the, this is this whole move away from fossil fuels in vancouver and i get that we're not abandoning that but for, you know, we're, we're in a pandemic here. So for anyone to say, well, question will prove to me you need propane. I mean, just, you know, there's a safety issue. I get that. Yeah. But what they have to recognize is that the business owner has a vested interest for his employees, his guests or her guests and the safety. And you're not going to get a bunch of people jerry rigging, you know, stuff on the sidewalks right. just for the sake of survival. These are professional business people have a lot at stake. So if you turn them loose and you turn their innovation loose and let them do it, and you know if there, you know if Sterling Fox has been an established business in Vancouver, let Sterling go. Give them some credit and say Sterling, do the best you can. Right. And we'll follow up with the paperwork and the red tape after the fact, not you know as we wait for the the, the pandemic to uh, to to be gone here. So it is frustrating. You know, City of Vancouver has done a pretty good job, mm-hmm. but they they still get caught up in their rules and regulations and all the safety stuff. Well, again, again, and that's that's bureaucracy as much as anything else. And the politicians at the at, at the head of all of that have the ability to tell the bureaucrats to stand down, uh, and are to a certain extent. But they can they can flex their muscles a little more uh, aggressively, can't they? Yeah, I, you know, and we're calling for you know, more public figures to get out and stand up and, and take a stand for restaurants because. You know, safety. This is not. This is nothing new that we're doing right now because of the standards that we have in place for pandemics. We've always been safe places. We've always been sanitized places, and so we need to. I think there's a reluctance. On the one hand, uh, Dr. Henry's doing a great job, but she's sort of cautioning us to sort of stay in our, you know, stay in our little bubbles. Yes. On the other hand, um, you know, we're saying get out to restaurants, and the people are going. I don't quite understand this, but. We're not saying go out with 50 people. We're, we're saying go enjoy a nice meal, six people or less in a restaurant, and enjoy yourself. And, and that's a very, very safe proposition. 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the 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 winter season ahead, mm-hmm. and and because uh, I again, as you go from place to place, it's very interesting. It's just talking about give the give the the owner of the establishment some credit for a head on his or her shoulders, and let them uh, let them establish the rules and let them implement them as as they would accommodate their premises. And you see, I mean, some of the plexiglass, for example, Ian, that you see being used in restaurants. Now, some of it is very clever and very creative. And and so you feel uh, you're sitting in your perhaps outdoor in in some kind of booth on a patio. You've got a a plexiglass shield between you and the booths on either side of you. You've got the outdoors, the great view. Um, And and it does feel, and, and maybe you don't have the distance between tables that you that would be two meters but because you have the plexiglass walls you don't need them so it it allows for a little interpretation and the safety factor is never compromised that's what you're talking about right yeah exactly so you see some restaurants now are going looking inward um they're putting in uh, plexiglass you know to make up for the lack of patio perhaps right and and you're right so this is again for you know for, for the listeners Tables don't have to be six meters apart if they're separated by plexiglass. In this case, plexiglass is the best way. And so that allows the restaurant to increase its capacity. So if you, if you did, if it was six, so what the, the math is, is that if you, if you hold a restaurant to six feet between tables, you're basically asking that restaurant to operate at 50%. Right. If you allow a patio and some plexiglass, they could push that to 70 or 80%. At, and at that point, you're getting to uh, you know maybe being able to break even, mm-hmm. um, all things being considered, and that's that's the best we can hope for right now, and um, and we're working towards that. But they also, you know, you're seeing restaurants are going to take advantage, sterling of sort of on and off premises, and so you're seeing now uh, some restaurants getting ready for Thanksgiving. And yes. They have meal kits you can order, and they have cocktail kits you can order at your home if you don't want to go to restaurants. So there's some really interesting innovation. Um, so you've got in-store dining, you've got takeout and delivery, and now you have the whole innovation around food and cocktails where you can order up your experience and bring it home to your, you know, your kitchen and cook it. So, um, it's a pretty impressive industry that, you know, has been throwing so many curves at it that continues to fight back to survive. Well, the resiliency factor alone is just jaw-dropping, Ian. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's so personal. This is my life's blood. This is my restaurant. Please, I've got to make a go of it. And 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 the, the determination yeah. is is just impressive as all get out. Uh, need to take a quick break here. Ian Tostenson is with us. He's the CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Welcome back to the program. We are in the middle of a provincial election, like it or not. And as it turns out, most of us don't like it. Uh, the NDP are favored to win, as it uh, turns out, in polling taken at the beginning of the campaign. But the pollsters were also very, very quick to ask each and every person before uh, the election, who are you going to support in the current election? What do you think about the idea of the current election? And that part of the questioning landed with a resounding thud, which not a popular idea at all. Here to talk about the vote and the complications of voting during a global pandemic is Ian Waddell. Mr. Waddell is a former MP and BC MLA, cabinet minister included. He's also president of the Association of Former BC MLAs. Ian Waddell, good morning. Welcome.
Oh, he just dropped off? He just dropped off. And we called him a half an hour ago. That's the funny part about this. We called him a half an hour ago when we were calling Ian Tostenson. Uh, Julie called Ian Waddell first. (laughs) So he's been aware of the fact that he's going to be on the show for for a little longer than perhaps he had counted on this morning. Uh, Yes, but we will just uh, reconnect with Mr. Waddell and talk about this. But the poll, uh, very, very, very upfront. Just in the paper the other day, uh, despite overwhelming disapproval of a snap election uh, the ndp remained favored uh, nonetheless the it's the snap uh uh, it's the it's the uh, lack of approval for the process in the first place that really caught our attention is he in there mr waddell yes. are you with us yeah. now yes i am well there you good are morning, good, good morning ian how are you <laughs> Hard for an old guy to get up. Well, I love yeah. your show, so I got up. Well, and, uh, we appreciate your being with us, especially since we gave you kind of a warning call a half hour early. <laughs> so, oh, don't mention that. We'll just get a coffee and the extra one before we start right. talking. Let's talk a little bit, first of all, uh, if you don't mind, about uh, something completely disconnected with the conversation, but I'm intrigued by the Association of Former BC MLAs. As I understand it, both nonprofit and nonpartisan. So you're here in a nonpartisan capacity, despite yeah, your obvious f- political affiliation. But tell us about that's the association. A, well, the association has been going for some time. It, um, it, it's, it, it, in fact, has a, an act of the legislature, the BC legislature, setting it up. And there's a similar one federally. And what it is is former members mm-hmm. who uh, who um, uh, band together and a bit of it like a union, you know, with their their concerns of their personal concerns and things. But also, uh, we're mandated to do things in the public interest to use our experience. We've got lots of experience, sure. and to use our experience and our knowledge that we've learned in a nonpartisan way to work together for to promote democracy. And especially reach out to young people. For example, we give a scholarship to two students who go to um, the, uh, the the legislature at Christmas and have a youth parliament. Oh, sure, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And so we reach out uh, to young people. Uh, we try and get them involved in democracy, get them voting and so on. And it's amazing how in the, in the legislature we're fighting each other, but when we're all retired, we're kind of, uh, we're all friends. And uh, I, I just took over. I'm the new president yeah. elected yesterday. And Jeff Bray was the previous president, who's a liberal. And uh, I've got, you know, we've we've got people on the executive from from all different parties. And we're going to try and do some interesting things this year. You know, we want one example. We're going to try and maybe do some radio interviews and maybe video interviews of former members to say, well, why did they get into politics? Did, was it worth it? Mm. What did they feel they attributed, contributed? And so on. Because we need to know our history. So I can tell you today a little bit about history, about early elections, if you want to hear about that. Yeah, I'm just uh, in a minute. But first, I'm curious, as you, you've just been elected to this, uh, to, to, and you've yeah. been bumped up from secretary to president, so congratulations yeah, yeah. on that. <laughs> but in the in the process of being elected, obviously you've had to touch base with pretty much the entire membership. And so doing that over the past few days, and you've been talking to liberals and conservatives, so creds for crying out loud, along yeah, with fellow yeah. NDP members, what is the consensus among... If, if there is one, Ian, among your former MLA colleagues about this snap election, it's not going well I, with, the, with the voters. I, I don't think there's a consensus yet. I think it's early. Uh, I think this has been the opening round in the first week, you know, uh, where, where um, uh, 
the opposition has been saying, well, there's no need for an election, especially during a pandemic. You've got to deal with the Greens, to, and it's good till next October 21st. Right. <clears throat> you should honor it. John Horgan, on the other hand, uh, who's been a popular premier, is saying that, uh, well, the deal was with Andrew Weaver. He's gone. There's kind of a split in the Greens. And, um, uh, uh, and, and, and it's a bit unstable. And he points to a bill that was um, uh, uh, a compulsory treatment of, of infants who are drug addicted. And there was some split with the Greens on that. So it, it's led, and it's led to some awkward questions from the media, as you just pointed out, Shirley. Mm-hmm. So will it hold? My, my, my thing, my own feeling, past my experience, remember, I was, I was a young uh, lawyer working for the Dave Barrett government on December 11th, 1975, mm-hmm. when he called an early, early election and he got defeated yes. by Bill Bennett, the Socrates. I was in the House of Commons in 1979 when we voted against, I was a federal member, voted against um, uh, Joe Clark. Uh, but he Clark kind of wanted an election. He got defeated yes. by Sir Trudeau. Uh, David Peterson in Ontario called an early election. Late Jim Prentice in Alberta. So um, mm, it could be tricky, but... Politics is strange, as you know, Sterling. Like uh, just recently, there was an election in New Brunswick at the time of a pandemic, yes. minority government, and he got a majority. Right. And, and I think you have to look. There is a poll out. I don't know. Did you see this poll that came out last week? I, Whatever. Deep Deep Baker, who I knew actually, used to say, "Former Prime Minister, you know what dogs do to polls." That's right. But, uh, <laughs> but the poll shows Oregon seventeen points ahead of. Of, of Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, when asked what, who would make the best premier. No question. He's pretty far. Yeah. So, he said, so I think, I think, I, I think we'll see it the first week. I have a feeling that the issue of, and this is my own feeling, and I'm trying, and I'm trying not to be partisan, but it's my own feeling, that, that maybe it's all, that issue is an issue. It's there, but it, it won't be fatal. And I think what, People will then start looking at fatal to Oregon. What mm-hmm. people will start looking at will be starting. Well, okay, who are these leaders? Who is Sonia Fursino? Who right. is Andrew Wilkinson? Mm-hmm. You know, like who? And then they're going to say, well, um, let's talk about some policies. Like uh, we got some big stuff, like homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, jobs, uh, energy, economy, energy, climate. You know, there's some big issues out there. You know, and and. I think I was watching it, and I, I could see how it developed. I'm, I, I saw Horgan, who, was a, who will talk mainly about um, uh, Christy Clark, right? Right. Those previous liberals. You wonder if Christy will come forward. Uh, that'll be interesting. Wilkinson, who's har- hardly known, you know, I mean, he's got a CV that's uh, a resume. What is he? Lawyer, doctor, road scholar. Impressive. But he's but he's a bit stiff, you know. Yeah. And you say, nice man, nice man. But let's see how he develops policies. Let's see if, what he comes out with, because, you know, that's it. And Sonia, first and all, the Green Party leader, I, I'm better. I like her. She's feisty. And, uh, but she's got to, can she make the Greens go anywhere, you know? And I think the, the NDP are trying to pick up the Green seats. I think so, too. Like their strategy. But, boy, they got a better. 
NDP better get a majority because I don't think the Greens are going to make a deal with them anymore. I think that's pretty much gone by the board. So let me take a quick break. Ian Ian Waddell is with us uh, this morning. He's the president of the Association of Former BC MLAs. And of course, he once upon a time represented Vancouver Fraser View in the ledge and has represented this province in Ottawa as well. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.